0: And I have Dr. Conrad Iber. Uh, he's with the University of Minnesota, and he also uh, does some work with uh, Fairview Sleep Center. Uh, so, Dr. Iber, or Conrad, thanks for coming. How are you doing?
1: I'm great. Thank you so much for inviting me.
0: Yeah, so tell me about your work um, at Fairview or perhaps your research. What What are you working on now in the field of sleep that uh, is of particular interest to you?
1: Well, uh, I guess my original work was primarily in uh, causes of interruption of breathing patterns and earlier in my career, things that caused apneas or cessation of breathing, part of the sleep apnea syndrome, and uh, later worked in uh, some areas of epidemiology. Uh, we have several areas of interest right now. One that's kind of a new area for me are areas of policy, which I find interesting, the opportunities in population management, working in a large, larger healthcare system, and improving population health in and, and sleep apnea and other conditions, and then also uh, even in the community, I'm working with public health, the University of Minnesota on a, a school start time um, issue, looking at the impact on adolescent sleep health, specifically obesity, with uh, Rachel Widom and, and others, and but also working on uh, uh, public health more generally in, in sleep medicine and within the healthcare system, so we 've developed some sort of model if you will care plans for patients to, for instance with sleep apnea with home and electronic health record integration for about five or six years now
0: and the the initiative to uh, start school at a different time can you know can we maybe we can start with that um, i 've heard that the uh, the chronotype the time that people like to get up you know when they're teenagers or maybe even in middle school is different than older folks. What time right now do kids have to report to school and what time do you think it would be more beneficial and why?
1: Yeah and I think you've pointed on uh, this interesting opportunity in population health to bring together basic sleep science which really started decades ago and understanding that adolescents actually have by nature a delay in their sleep schedule, beginning roughly around the age of 12, pubescence. There is a delay, so um, independent of their tendency to surf the internet and uh, and study late into the evening is a, perhaps a stronger drive for them to go to bed later and get up later. And uh, so, you asked about times, and typically school start times for high schoolers and middle schoolers can, can be 7.30. And in fact, across most of the nation in the U.S., that's a common pattern with some changes gradually occurring uh, since the late 1990s. And in some schools, for instance, have delayed school starts as late as uh, 8.30 or even after nine, 9 in the morning, which fits a bit better with the natural sleep schedule. So I find this policy area is very interesting. It's always often a little controversial, but it brings together basic uh, sleep science with impact on uh, public health, which is uh, a real opportunity for those of us who work uh, seeing individual patients and managing specific problems. It's also an opportunity to
0: improve uh, sleep health overall. All right. Well, what what does that mean, though? So a school starts, you know, 9 or 9.30 Has this been studied? What's been the effect on kids? Do they learn better? You know, how does it quantify?
1: Yeah, I I guess, uh, you know, the outcome data, um, and again, it's, you know, started out sort of anecdotally, but uh, increasingly, studies like this are being done where sort of what we call quasi-experimental. Some schools are choosing to change their start time, and so looking at the schools who don't and the schools who do, do, we can see changes in outcomes, and they're quite diverse. They're affected by many things that are going on in the schools, but the general changes are kids... Uh, generally perform better uh, when they start later. So there is improvement in academics. Some things we wouldn't normally think about are also happening. Uh, They have less car accidents, particularly in the morning, they're more likely to be alert. And so school districts that delay their start time will generally experience a reduction in car accident rates. uh, A major cause, of course, for death in teens is uh, accident rates in general, and inattentiveness due to sleepiness is a component of that. So um, we see improvement in academic performance. Uh, There's improvements in when children get more sleep improvements in mood may not be obvious, but sleep, uh, I think we all recognize anecdotally that younger kids who don't get sleep are cranky. Uh, What We don't realize that adolescent mental health is substantially affected. Uh, Even the impact of school start time can change that. Uh, One study showed that offering children a longer time to sleep uh, by things such as change in their schedule, in this case school start time, does afford a measurable change in in, uh, subjective mood. Uh, Mood's a big deal in teens. Fairfax, Virginia uh, looked at their experience with kids not getting sleep. A survey of children who got less than five or six hours of sleep had very high uh, suicide attempts within a year. And so mood changes are pretty important, determined in part by getting adequate sleep. And, and so this is an opportunity to step into a population and influence wide variety of outcomes, including safety, weight gain, potentially, and academic uh, improvement, even within athletics and adolescent and Young adult safety, at least in and, in and, uh, per, and perhaps when performance improves with extending sleep time. So you let me know if I'm going too far on any of these questions. I'm happy to. If you want to interrupt me, because uh, I know you probably have some of specific things you'd like to talk about.
0: No, no, this is good. I mean, that's 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 a much more quantified answer. That it, you know. So there's tons of benefits for it. it. What's has there been a reaction or buy-in from school administrators or parents or kids? I mean, do they like the current uh, start and stop times, or would they prefer something different?
1: Well, I think it's uh, you know it's a big change for a school, and there are some costs involved. Um, often uh, cited costs are the cl- the classic one is uh, you know it's going to cost a few million dollars to change our bus schedules. Hasn't really you know I, we can speak locally in the metropolitan area here of Minneapolis-St. Paul. Uh, we've had a fair bit of experience looking at this critically for a few decades, and that just hasn't happened. There are costs involved. Certainly, it's it's a structural change for schools. They often have elementary school kids going a little earlier, and then uh, late middle school, high school kids going later. So there's a way to accomplish it, and the costs aren't uh, unmanageable. It's a transition for schools, so there's no doubt transition for parents too, who you know have to often make uh, a difference in the way in which they're managing at home their supervision of of kids. Having had 14 teens myself, I appreciated having them coming home a, a little later actually from school uh, closer to when I was coming home from work <laughs> and I think so sometimes parents need to look at the potential benefits of the
0: uh, changes in time uh, for their teenagers. Okay, very good. With, um, in terms of your other work, what, are you seeing any trends in how people are sleeping or how long or the quality of their sleep or you know what are you seeing overall is happening to people?
1: I think people have become, you know, the surveys done, for instance, by National Sleep Foundation looking at uh public's acceptance of um increasing scrutiny on people like policemen, bus drivers, transportation workers, uh healthcare workers, on the fact that uh that these people need sleep in order to perform better. Uh there's becoming a general acceptance, I think, in society that we do need to sleep and personal awareness people are wearing devices to ensure that they're getting sleep Uh, I think we who practice in the field appreciate this awareness because it makes it a little bit easier on an individual uh, level you know counseling patients uh, all the way to improving outcomes. to have this kind of buy-in so I think you're pointing out the awareness on a you know probably another level I might mention that we are implementing more sort of in-home monitoring with wearable devices, for instance, looking for the duration of sleep and uh, increasingly integrating uh, some of the devices we have um, in all fields, not just in sleep medicine, so that we can do more virtual monitoring and support for people. Uh, We started a program here in 2013 of integrating uh, devices. Literally, you know, every breath is being captured at night with these positive airway pressure devices for sleep apnea or even ventilatory support and these can be integrated into electronic health record which allows then a coordinated care plan for managing patients and so that's an area of, of population health I think is also a very exciting which is uh, the opportunity to do home monitoring um, that may correlate with lots of outcomes uh, increased in, uh, sleep per se, but disruption of sleep is also not a good thing. There are diseases and aging and medical conditions that disrupt sleep, and that's a, a measurable issue in the home that can be captured on home devices and can be utilized by healthcare providers in optimizing care.
0: So how would you compare, um, again, doing a sleep study in clinic to uh, any kind of monitoring at home? Are they are they closing the gap, or is it still going to be a while before that's uh, all the same? Well, I think many of us in the field have been
1: doing this for many decades, and uh, it's, uh, the closing the gap is partly technology and partly our learning what we can and can't do. Can we do kids? Can we do adults? Uh, can we do adults with disease? Can we do younger children? And I think we are pushing the envelope on this and realizing that with Uh, not just the technology per se, but the workflows uh, to ensure that we don't lose people in the process uh, with disease or unnecessarily treat people who are being incorrectly classified as having disease. I think that's where we're narrowing the gap, and um, I think it will be uh, wonderful when we're at a point that we can do much more uh, home monitoring Uh, for ongoing monitoring of disease management, uh, as well as for diagnostic testing. And there are a lot of opportunities uh, for moving into new areas. Uh, I know uh, some people are working with no-touch methods of various sorts. Um, They don't yet, I think, have the accuracy or granularity detail that we need for some of our uh, diagnoses. But... um, I think we're certainly on the threshold with technology of achieving a lot of that, and the real trick may not just be the technology. The real trick is integrating into a healthcare management strategy that really works well uh, and and uh, serving the patients at the same time, uh, correctly classifying them and
0: following them. So, what do you see as um, as up and coming in the sleep world over the next you know year, two, three years? Any new technology that you're excited about or new initiatives?
1: Yeah, I think already we're seeing uh, quite a bit of um, leveraging uh, virtual methods, and uh, I'm talking about telemedicine methods of various sorts, telemonitoring uh, methods of various sorts, you know, diagnostic uh, monitoring. I think it will be wonderful if we get a better, um, we're not quite there yet, uh, neuropharmacology that allows us to eventually alter sleep schedules better than what we can currently do. We are, I think, failing to meet the needs of the 8 to 12 million shift workers who are burdened by the inability to adapt to changes in schedule. And that population who have higher risk of perhaps uh, controversially of cognitive problems, but certainly of healthcare risks, of a range of different healthcare risks and maybe even mortality. We're not serving that population. They may not be performing very well in their work, and if we had better methods identifying people with better resilience based on their genetics or performance guiding them into proper schedules and and neuropharmacology perhaps to better adjust schedules and also replacing some of the unnecessary 24/7 industry tasks, then we could be serving that population. Circadian rhythm in the last few years has really i think taken off it has a long history uh but we're at a point now uh where uh, there are a lot of opportunities for a- improving um, duration and quality of sleep and uh, better matching uh, sleep schedule to
0: make sure people get it. Quick question about this um, when you say shift workers is that people that are just working nights or overnights or is it people who have to change their shift you know every week?
1: Yeah some of the reporting on this is a little challenging because uh, often shifts do change even within a given individual the pattern of that change may be altered. The Certainly the highest risk people are the people who are working night shift, and often those people are rotating between uh, night shift work and attempting to get daytime sleep to two on days that they're off, trying to sleep at night, and that pattern doesn't work very well. Uh, in particular, night shift workers, also rotating shift workers, particularly if the rotations are. Uh, done in some settings in industry, you know, every four days is a change in shift. Those are the people at greatest risk. Day shift workers, obviously, and even second shift workers who are well positioned within their natural sleep uh, cycle, may do relatively well. Um, so uh, I, I think primarily it's the night shift workers. We do know, and we have known for some time, that that group, similar to what we talked about earlier with adolescents, are higher safety risks, um, they make errors. Uh, they have higher accident rates, and they have significant medical risks related to their shift work.
0: So what would be the solution for shift workers? I mean, if they can get onto a consistent shift, is that better than, I mean, that's better than the rotation, but... Um, yeah, the problem. Are there any other ways to fix things?
1: Yeah, well, I think that's what I'm getting at. That's where our science needs to take some steps forward. Uh, for instance, if you had a neuro, if you had a pharmacological agent that allowed a, a quicker change and a more sustainable change in uh, circadian rhythm, then you could use that intervention to help manage people we're we're far from that I think at this point but it seems conceivable since we have some interventions already alternatively if you could identify people who have resilience to adapting to different changes or who have specific circadian tendencies uh, so as an example in lay language if you have people who tend to be night owls Uh, then they would probably be best placed in a second shift position. So let's go ahead and do that. Let's identify people who are best placed in specific shifts and then match them to those shifts. Let's be a little bit more careful about not rotating shifts. And let's identify people who are particularly uh, impaired and burdened uh, by their inability to adapt to change shifts and, and not put them into this risk category. So um, how we operationalize that I think is a question. How do you do you use survey or biological markers to identify a certain tendency to be an, a lark or a, a night owl and, um, and how do you identify uh, resilience to adaptability? We have some work in this area already and I think we're a little ways from implementing it widely. Well, what kind of biomarkers would you look
0: at to gauge the effectiveness of what's going on?
1: Uh, Well, um, you know, typically we we can look at uh, activity pattern. Um, We have uh, melatonin measures that uh, can be used to identify circadian rhythm. I don't think they're in a a very practical way. Uh, We don't have um, easy measures of of biomarkers. Uh, There are some Genetics. I'm not working in a specific area, but there are some uh, genetic predictors of resilience that might eventually reach a point of being in practical use to allow us to determine who's perhaps at risk and who's not at risk uh, for shift work. Um, The science behind all of this moving forward I think will make our lives a lot easier. There's a little fear of getting information, I think, and it has to be done ethically uh, about individuals that predicts cancer or predicts uh, inability Mm -hmm. to work at a given shift. And so we have to be sensitive to the ethics uh, in applying the information.
0: Well, what would be the ethics if... uh you were studying people and you were looking at X number of biomarkers and for some reason you think you were able to see that they had a higher increased risk of cancer. Or it would be that well, you they can, did have cancer. Like, how would you figure that out and what would be the ethical dilemma of it?
1: Yeah, I'm not sure I have the answer to that, except to say you could imagine that if an employer had information that would indicate that mm-hmm. somebody should or shouldn't be working at a shift they would make an employment decision based on that either when they would work or whether they're even employed and so there's a you know i, I think the the information is in the hands of the patient and they can make the decision or the individual uh in conjunction perhaps with their provider uh that might be better placed um, ethically in terms of managing them
0: okay gotcha or at least kept private so that uh yeah, You know, anonymized, the data would be anonymized to be, uh, you know, to be displayed in a study, and then it would be kept private, I guess, according to HIPAA, you know, for the individual itself. Right. For themselves. Okay. That makes a lot of sense. Um, Any interesting studies on sleep that you've, uh, that are in progress right now that you're monitoring and tracking or uh, ones that you've conceived of that you'd like to do that maybe haven't been done?
1: Yeah, I I'm, I'm interested in some of these no-touch uh, approaches. They're they're diverse. Uh there are a few early reports uh in children sometimes and and then some adults it's difficult to use uh direct touch monitoring. Um and so the uh, the uh, potential for that is quite diverse. It might include the use of chips uh, that are placed subcutaneously uh, that can be used to Monitor diverse physiologic measures, including potentially even sleep or at least activity measures, all the way to external devices. For instance, say radar has been recently uh, used to identify movement. Uh, perhaps that could be used to pick up physiologic uh, measures. Uh, detect sleep without the need for direct uh, contact in those in whom it's rather difficult to to have uh, direct contact so there's some, uh, some interesting
0: diagnostic uh
1: potential there I think
0: any correlation of um conditions that uh you know are pretty prevalent say let's say diabetes and how that correlates with what it does to their sleep or you know uh obesity cancer yeah, etc Is there a field where people are looking at medical conditions and then looking at the sleep of the people that have them and seeing how that's affected? Yeah, well, I think the one that
1: is... Perhaps the uh,
0: greatest public health issue is related to weight
1: gain and its impact on the development of diabetes and and insulin resistance in people with insufficient sleep or with conditions such as sleep apnea or other conditions which interfere with the quality of sleep. And so, and there are increasingly, uh, probably even starting at an early age, there is an a uh, there is evidence for. Um, insufficient sleep and uh, at least a longitudinal relationship with the development of obesity. Obesity is it's of course disputed yet but there's a substantial mortality on a yearly basis related to at least to the complications of weight gain which has uh, exploded in our culture in the past 50 years or so. Um, And uh, so it's an important area of the intersection between sleep, uh, its duration um, and its fragmentation uh, and the impact on weight gain starting probably early in childhood um, all the way through adulthood. And so if we, um, I think the implication is if we can better manage sleep, it will at least have some um, impact on the issues we're having that are driving obesity some of them are related to sleep probably many more uh, Are related to our culture and access to food? Uh,
0: which has evolved over the past 50 years or so? Okay. Well, very good any of, again any particular uh, study that you'd like to uh, to See done anything you want to elucidate?
1: Well, I think I alluded to a couple of areas. One would it would be awfully nice for the area of research and neuropharmacology to to help us develop biomarkers for development of for predicting adaptability and resilience in the setting of shift work and also for modifying the response to changes in shift or to altering the shift uh, circadian rhythm itself that would be the amazing area i think that would benefit our culture management of insomnia you know has moved up quite a bit in this country and in england in terms of guidelines uh, away from use of pharmacological agents that's a a very good uh, move we need to probably tune that process better than what we're doing to make sure we can get cognitive and behavioral approaches uh, in, in integrated into uh, systems of care uh, so that we can better manage that very prevalent condition. And uh, I think in terms of uh, changing public health, I think the area kind of interesting area of research that doesn't often come to us as sleep practitioners of uh, changing uh, attitudes <laughs> about uh, the importance and the biological imperative of sleep uh, and then implementing those changes in real world situations uh, have an opportunity to change uh, uh, health and sleep, both sleep health and public health in general quite a bit
0: in this area. Do you feel like uh, societally we're going the right way in terms of our perception of sleep and the importance of it or is that yeah, more education if look- needed and we're sliding back? yeah i, I think uh in you know we have fits and starts in every
1: area of human progress, but i think there's been a continuous progress in you know it was first uh in this century in particular uh, I, i'm s- i'm sorry in the the last two centuries in particular in the uh development of the science of sleep that has really leveraged everything moving forward and um and Recently, in the past 50 years, I would say, awareness of sleep and um, and the importance of sleep, uh, perhaps one of the scarier things that's still kind of being tuned is uh, are the implications of um, impaired sleep, fragmentation, or insufficient sleep on cognitive function and its impact on neurodegenerative disease. Uh, that's an important issue because a substantial percentage of the population by the year 2050 is likely to have neurodegenerative disease and if sleep insufficient sleep is a driver for that then what we're doing now is critically important in uh, in helping to manage that risk so um so I guess those are uh, but I think we're on the you asked do I think we're on the right path I'm just one person of course I think you would uh survey people most people would agree that the field has been uh, strikingly progressive in the past uh, since it's, you know, development. Uh, it's a relatively young field of sleep science and sleep medicine. And um, a lot has happened in that time to make us aware of why it is a biological imperative and why it has a substantial impact on public health. Um, so I think we're moving in the right direction. Well, very good. So
0: what's the best way for folks that are listening to find out more? Maybe get in contact, uh, you know.
1: Question. well i
0: yeah i um um we are i
1: this is a public program i realized uh so uh we're just a metropolitan area here we have our program, but there are our our model programs around the country that uh do clinical and basic science uh, research in different areas of sleep medicine uh some are more basic science based um I think if the public is looking for specific information, um, the American Academy of Sleep Medicine offers uh, and National Sleep Foundation uh, both offer um, educational materials uh, that are supportive uh, through their websites on uh, general sleep health and sleep habits and sleep tip for both adolescents and for uh, adults. And um, within your locality, you can probably find sleep medicine practitioners who see pediatric sleep conditions. About 15% of kids will have and parents will have issues related often to sleep behaviors. And if you are looking for assistances as a patient, I, I certainly would leverage the use of sleep medicine services, pediatric and adult in your area and probably recommend uh, that you approach those centers that are accredited if they have in in sleep medicine and if they have um, specific areas of focus. There are certainly some that are much more focused on pediatric uh, sleep conditions than uh, you're having specific unusual behavioral problems with your child, uh, then you would probably want to seek one of those centers. Well, very good. Well, Dr.
0: Ivor, I I appreciate you coming on the podcast and thank you for being here. All right. Thanks so much for inviting me.